Welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast about resilience. I'm your host, Buddy Owen. Sing When You're Losing is produced by Future Proof Sports Consulting. Future Proof Sports Consulting is here to support athletes, teams, and clubs in a variety of ways to maximize performance and ensure that when it's time to hang up your boots, you're ready for whatever is next. Whoever you are, it's never too soon to start preparing for the future. On this podcast, we interview athletes, coaches, managers, referees, and others who are involved in sport. We listen to their stories of the good and the bad times, and we focus in on what the difficult times taught them. We believe that we should celebrate the good times and keep singing in the bad, as that is usually when we learn the most. So whatever you're going through, the highs and the lows, always remember to sing when you're losing. In today's episode, we get to hear from Andy Molesdale. Andy is a former professional rugby league player who has gone from the disappointment of not being offered the contract he wanted as a young professional, to fighting his way back through becoming a semi-professional, being set back by injury at a key time in his career, to working his way to CEO of his rugby club, the North Wales Crusaders. Now in his early 30s, Andy is building the club, but more importantly, using his experience to support the young men he now employs. So now, wherever you are, I hope that you're able to relax and listen to this great conversation with Andy, and that in some way, his experience will help you to learn to sing when you're losing. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. I'm Buddy, your host, and I'm really excited today to be able to introduce you to someone who, over the last few months, has become a friend. He is also an athlete. We'll talk a bit about that. And it won't surprise you to learn that the first time we met was on a golf course. So that seems to be a common theme among people on this podcast. So uh, I would like to introduce you today to Andy Molesdale. Andy is a, well, he's in rugby league. I won't tell you too much right now, but he's associated with rugby league and uh, is currently the CEO of his rugby club. But we'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But good morning, Andy. How are you doing? Good morning, buddy. I'm okay. How are you doing, mate? I'm not bad, actually. Yeah, not too mm-hmm. bad. Um, for those of you who are listening to this later, today, uh, well, I guess yesterday, really, we properly found out that as of Thursday this week, we're going into another lockdown. And uh, I'm, I have to be honest, I'm not terribly excited about the prospect of another lockdown. Other than that, I'm okay. Uh, but potentially playing my last round of golf of 2020 tomorrow, and that doesn't excite me. So that's how I'm feeling. How are you feeling today? Uh, yeah, pretty much the same, mate, to be honest. It's not a, not a great time for everyone. Um, you, you're quite lucky that you can get on your golf course tomorrow. I, I, I just frantically looked up to see if we could get a last round on mine, but yeah, unfortunately, it looks like my golfing year has come to an end. So, uh, but yeah, you know, more important things to, I suppose, focus on. But yeah, it's not, not, not a great situation to be in at present. No, since lockdown ended, the golf courses have been absolutely packed, which is great uh, yeah. for golf because. Prior to that, golf had taken a bit of hit, a bit of a hit in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, since then they've been crazy, and and now to know we're not going to be able to play for the foreseeable future is a little bit sad. 
Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I've seen a lot of, since the announcement, I've seen a lot of uh, petitions and stuff to try and keep golf courses open. Because if you, if you remember um, when they started to lift the restrictions, even probably uh, June, July time, golf was one of the first things that they said, you know, you can, you can go back and do. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, anyone who's ever played golf will, will tell you that, you know, socially distant, you know, it's not a problem to do that. It's, it's in the outdoors. So I hope that the, you know, I, I hope for everyone's sake that they revisit that and, you know, and, and reopen them because I, I, I don't see a great risk. You know, the, all the clubhouses and the bars will be shut. But as far as getting out and playing, I, I don't see a massive issue with that, if I'm honest. Yeah. Well, especially for you and me, because I'm right-handed, you're left-handed. I oh, tend yeah. to hit the ball to the right side of the, well, I yeah. don't say fairway, but that's the rough. generous. The right side of the course in the rough. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. 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 And you often end up on the other side. So occasionally yeah, we yeah. meet on a green. Um, yeah. It's pretty socially distanced for us. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or in the bunkers more often than not. Yeah. Bunkers. Yeah. 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 Not a fan of bunkers. Um, <laughs> So we'll come, we might come back to golf actually in just a little while. But um, so let's just talk a little bit about a little bit about you, who you yeah. are, uh, where you're from, and uh, and the sport that you love. So where were you born? I am from. I was born and raised in uh, in Warrington, which is uh, a massive rugby league town, which is obviously why I got into the sport. Um, I played. Uh, Amateur rugby in, in Warrington for a little while for a club called Ryland Sharks. Uh, it was a, a really sort of prominent amateur team for you know kids and, and open age sections. And then when I was 16, 17, I, I signed for Warrington Wolves, which is the professional team in the town. Um, and played for Warrington throughout the academy uh, and was involved with the first team, probably till I was about 21, I think. 20, 21, 22. Uh, and then... Yeah, didn't, didn't really, didn't work out as uh, it probably should have or could have from my perspective. So, uh, yeah, the age of 21, 22, it was time to to move on from being a, a sort of full-time professional uh, to trying to work out what was going to happen in the next stage of my life, really. Okay. We'll come back to all that. But um, let's, so you're from Warrington, and Warrington is one yeah. of the few places in the country where rugby league is yeah. bigger than rugby union or even football. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Probably Warrington and Wigan are probably two towns that I would, I would, yeah, I would say that about, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what is it about rugby? So, I, okay, I'm American, which all of you know, and I knew rugby existed. I knew it was a sport before I moved to the UK. But it wasn't until I moved here that I re realized that there were, as you call it, there were two different codes of yeah. rugby, uh, rugby league and rugby union. And it took me a while to get my head around what the two codes are. Uh, I then learned that uh, rugby league is more popular in the north historically yeah. and rugby yeah. union in the south. And rugby league was also the first to become professional, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, it was, yeah. So why is rugby league particularly, why is it so popular in the North? And with it becoming the first to become professional, why, why have the tables switched now? It seems that rugby union is higher paid, 
Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. More popular. But so, so what happened? How did rugby league become almost the little brother to rugby union's big brother? I would say, I mean, if you look, a lot of it would be perceived that how far the game is played worldwide. So if you if you look at rugby union compared to rugby league, uh, rugby league is obviously massive in the north of England, massive in Australia. But apart from that, there's not a lot of... It's getting there now, you know, there's a lot more countries playing. But if you look at the countries that are involved in a rugby union World Cup, uh, from a global perspective of, I suppose, sponsorship, which obviously bring ultimately brings in money, uh, TV deals uh, that is worldwide. So that, that that's where the, I suppose, the money aspect of rugby union comes in. And then I would say another factor would be the amount of kids that play the sports. So obviously in schools down south and in the Midlands, um, predominantly it's rugby union played. So obviously um, if kids are starting from a young age to play a certain sport, it's sort of tough to to break that and get in and, and change the mentality of you know rugby league. And unfortunately at the minute rugby league is is sort of um, you know branded a you know an M62 sort of corridor sport in, in the north of England. Um, I don't know if you've seen it yesterday, buddy, but unfortunately Toronto were sort of unsuccessful in their bid to Toronto Wolfpack, obviously based in Canada, were unsuccessful in their bid to join um, join Super League for next year. So you know that that again that that's a bit of a blow really for expansion in rugby league. Yeah, you may or may not be a rugby historian. I don't know which was the first code of rugby to start historically. Do you know? I think was, I'm sure it was rugby league, and then there was, uh, the rules changed. There was sort of a breakaway in the, um, you know, you went from sort of unlimited tackles to then having, um, you know, the, the way rugby league now played, and you know, I suppose it's similar to NFL in that respect, where you, you know, you only get you know six, five or six tries to, and then you have to hand the ball over. So yeah, I think the rules changed uh, towards that and there, there was a breakaway but yeah it's a bit of a strange one like you say in the, in the fact that um, rugby league was the first to, to sort of turn pro but it's sort of lagged behind uh, in recent years and rugby union uh, has gone on you know and and internationally and throughout certainly our country is, is certainly perceived and well not perceived is a is a bigger sport that's, you know generates a lot more money Um and ultimately, you know, players will go to a certain point where, where the where the money's in the game. Absolutely. I have to admit that, I, I mean, I don't watch loads of rugby, but if I'm going to watch rugby, I prefer watching rugby league. Rugby league, think, yeah. I think it, it's more a more open game. It is more similar to American football as well, um, yeah. which I think helps keep it more open with the phases of the game, as you say. Yeah. A limited number of tries. Yeah, I think it's a lot. There's a lot more going on in rugby league. I mean, I suppose you could say I was biased, but there's not as much sort of stop-start and, you know, the ball is dead sometimes in the rooks in rugby union, whereas rugby league sort of, you know, all action, the ball's in play, you know, quite a high proportion of, of the game. And, it's I, I, you know, it's a good watch. You tend to find... I think the problem is with rugby league at the minute is... Um, whenever I introduce anyone to rugby league and they watch it, they, they love the game. But if you go back to rugby league 20, 30 years ago, there was there was a star in the game. So you had Mark, Martin Afire, 
Ellery Hanley. You know, there's always big stars that you could relate to. Whereas everyone seems to love rugby league, um, you know, as a spectacle, but there's no real, you know, there's no real standout names, if you like, to go with the game at present. Uh, and if there is, they tend to move to Australia, which is a bit of a, you know, but I suppose, like you say, players will, it's a short career and ultimately they'll go, you know, where, where the money is to a certain extent. Probably the money, yeah. Um, yeah. And a few so, of your higher profile players then change codes as well, don't they? There have been a few. Yeah, days. yeah, of course, yeah. We talked about Toronto Wolfpack before and thought, you know, they brought Sonny Bill Williams over back to play rugby league. Unfortunately, that hasn't worked out, but, you know, it was a, we, we sort of struggled to bring um, or keep the big names in. Um, in the, in the English game, which is which is unfortunate, I think it's something that you know the, if rugby league is gonna you know strive to to sort of be as big as what everyone wants the game, they need to look at how they can change that sort of aspect of it and keep superstars as as you like in, in, involved in the game. Yeah. So you finished playing at Warrington. You say well, well in Warrington area when you were about 21? Yeah, 20, I would think 21, 22 would have been, yeah. Okay. What was it, if, you, if you're if you willing to say, what, what was it that you felt kind of held you back? You kind of said before we, we started recording that you, you need to take some of the responsibility for your career, maybe not going where you wanted it to. Well, what was that then? Yeah, to be honest, now you know, I'd probably say need to take all the responsibility if I'm honest um, uh, at that age I was and all the way through the academy I was um, you know pre- I was pretty well thought of at Warrington um, but looking back now I probably didn't take it as serious as, as what I should um, being a young lad you sort of think that you know that you'll be in that sort of bubble and that opportunity will be there forever and you know it'll happen next year and and unfortunately for me you know, by the time I realised um, what sh- what I should have done, it you know it was too late. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say. You know, I apply myself to games, and I always had a, a you know a really good will to win and stuff. But off the pitch, I probably wasn't being a 19, 20, 21 year old. I probably didn't apply myself as you know as as I should. Um, and I you know I look back now and I play with a lot of lads who were in the same team as me who did apply themselves really well and you know and they got what they deserved and they've gone on to playing at Wembley in front of 80 90,000 people and won challenge cups and stuff so you know um and that, and that and that's what it takes I think that's a big lesson of you know any sports person talent will only get you so far uh, a lot of it has to be mindset and how professional you are and how hard you train and you know I don't mind saying it now at, at, at that age it, I, I didn't do that and ultimately um, and paid the price for it, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of young players across sports don't get yeah. until it's too late. You know, yeah. the, you you can you can be talented, but the talent without the hard work yeah. doesn't take you where you need to be. Yeah, of course. It's um, you know, I played with a lot of lads, probably the same situation as me. You know, I can think of two or three lads who are in the same boat. Of, you know, really talented, but I suppose when you are that talented, you, there's an element of, you know, do you have to sort of train as hard as everyone else? And in the end, it, 
catches up with you. Um, but yeah, I would say any, anyone now I was advising or, you know, if I had my, my, probably my children in that, in that sort of uh, same situation, you would, you know, you would advise them to do, you know, a lot of things differently than uh, than what I did. But I'd, yeah, yeah. But I suppose that makes you as well. We spoke earlier about do, do I regret that? In some ways, of course, I regret it. But then I think it, it made me uh, appreciate stuff as I was growing up or in later life or with my role now, uh, I can sort of relate to it. And, you know, it was just a, a time in my life that, you know, would I change it if I had a chance? Probably, but, you know, I don't I don't live my life looking, you know, looking back on things. I think that'll just eat you up and it's not, not good for anyone if, if you do things like that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, you know, you look at the top players in any sport, they're not just the ones who have the most talent, they're the ones that work the hardest, you know. Ti- yeah. Tiger Woods didn't come out of the womb swinging. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> just played harder, trained harder than anyone yeah. else did. Um, you know, I've seen his, his old coach, Butch Harmon, say that, you know, obviously he's uh, immensely talented, but he says he's the hardest working golfer he's ever worked with. You know, it's not an accident when someone, you know, is that good at, same with probably Ronaldo in football. Absolutely. Obviously, a uh, very talented footballer, but everyone, especially from his time at United, when people say, you know, he really grew up and, um, but he, everyone you speak to say he trains so hard, looks after his body and, the, you know, you, you don't get to be that good just by being talented. Um, you know, there's a lot of hard work and dedication that goes to it, which probably people don't see. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, you always hear, you know, the best, the best footballers, you'll hear people saying, oh, they used to stay after training every day, practicing their free yeah. kicks, or the best basketball players are doing the same thing, shooting after everyone else has left practice, or, you know. So um, there are no secrets, really, to being great. Um, no. It's not rocket science. It's no, it's a lot of dedication, hard work. work. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So when you left Warrington at about 21, what, what did you do next? So to be honest, I, I had a couple of offers um, to go and play for other clubs, uh, whether that being the uh, Super League or the Championship, which was the the league below. But looking back, I suppose my my head, or I just wanted a break from the game, which is quite unusual. Um, so I, I literally went back playing amateur rugby with, with my with my friends um, for sort of twelve months. Um, and we had a really, really good uh, amateur team and had a really good year. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing I did because at the time, I wasn't enjoying my rugby. Um, it was a chore. It was something that, you know, I just didn't look forward to training or playing. And ultimately, that reflects on your performance. Um, so going back, all I was, you know, was a step, obviously a step back. I got the love for the game again. I started playing well. I got myself fit, and I probably realised that you know that this is you know you've you've um, you've missed one opportunity. You need to sort of you know buckle down and, and do something. I had a really good twelve months, and then uh, an old coach that I knew um, was a, a coach in North Wales Crusaders, uh, John Fieldhouse, and he asked me to to come down and, and get involved with a club that was that was starting up in North Wales. So, yeah, it was probably the best thing I did, actually, that, that 12 months after I left Warrington. 
Yeah, I think there could potentially be a lesson in that for a lot of people. You, you talk yeah. to a lot of professional sports people who have completely fallen out of love with the sport they're playing. Yeah, uh, yeah. it can become a chore, I suppose. Especially, I think the, the biggest thing in sport for me is in enjoyment. I see a lot of lads who are really good players, or you know, even lads who you know you might not think are at a level where they can reach. But once they start enjoying what they do, you know, it becomes a different. You can see a different player, or you can, you know, you can just see everything about the demeanor changes. So, especially in sport, you know, people think you know they get paid X, Y, and Z, and you know they've got to be happy. But you, people have got to enjoy, in my opinion, what they do to get the you know get the best out of them. Yeah, it's like with any job, isn't it? Really, the the yeah. more you enjoy it, the more you get out of it. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, yeah. If you dread yeah. going in every day, whether that's to an office or a stadium. <laughs> yeah, there's no productivity out of people that are just, you know, unhappy. I totally agree. Yeah. So you, 22, 23, you move across to North Wales Crusaders, which is based in Wrexham, which yeah. uh, for those of you not from around here, that's North Wales. Yeah. And uh, it, you, so that was a startup club. That was a new club that you moved into? Yeah, so, well... Yeah, it technically, what happened was the Crusaders were actually in Super League. So they're in the same league as what obviously Warrington was and Wigan Warriors. Um, but the franchise, I believe the, the owners pulled out the franchise, uh, which left the club, uh, last minute as well, which left the club really in a bit of dire straits. So that club uh, was sort of throughout the league and had to start again. So although it had... Um, a base in Wrexham a supporter base in Wrexham the actual club uh, dissolved uh, but luckily they had such a strong fan base that the the supporters and a group of directors um, started the club uh, up again uh, but we had to start uh, in the lower leagues in, in League One so yeah it was a, technically a new startup of a club but it had you know quite a strong base to, to start from Sure so was that the first year that it started back then? Was that yeah? That, that was a, yeah. That was yeah. a two thousand twelve. I think it was. It's, yeah, first started back. Yeah. Okay, and you went into League One. You uh, now this you were you weren't a full time professional at this point, were you? No. So th this was um, at that point we would have been a semi pro team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so would have been semi pro. Tell us what that means in terms of. Um, money in terms of what other jobs people might be doing how do you, how do you make that work yeah so basically all the lads will you know will ultimately have jobs that you know the nine to five should we say jobs uh and then we would train three times a week and then play at weekends so you know it, it's tough it's a tough it was a tough demand on your on your life and your body i suppose but i think even more so at semi-professional level, when we spoke about enjoyment, I think it's massively important to have that when you're a semi-professional, because obviously you've got your work, family balance, but then you've also got your, you know, your, your rugby side of things as well. So, um, yeah, so enjoyment was was a massive factor in um, that probably that time in my life and career that I, re I was really enjoying my rugby, even the first year at North Wales. It was a good environment to be in. We had a good a uh, good bunch of players, good group of lads. And yeah, it's tough 
Um, but I think, you know, ultimately, if you're surrounded by good people, which we are good coaches and good players, um, you know, it proved pretty successful. So you were in League One. Tell me how the leagues work in Rugby League. So you have Super, you have super League, which is obviously the, the top league. Then you have the Championship, uh, which is the one below. And then you have League One. Uh, so we had, we had to enter back at League One, obviously, which is the right thing to do, new, new club. So the first 12 months was just about establishing, re-establishing the club, um, getting things put in place. And we, we had a pretty good first year, to be fair. Uh, considering we're, we're a startup team, we had a mix of sort of new lads and experienced lads uh, coming from different clubs. Um, and in, in the, our coach was Clive Griffiths, who was an ex-Wales Rugby Union international coach with a great reputation. Um, and he did a really good job. Um, unfortunately for me in that year, Clive named me captain of the of the team. Which I was probably it was a twenty, I think it was twenty four at the time. I just turned twenty four, um, and at the time I thought, oh, this is a bit of a because Clive's a typical old school coach, and he, he never mentioned anything, never asked me, never told me, never sounded me out. Just literally named the first team and said, right, Andy, Andy Mosdell's a captain. So it took me by surprise a little bit, um, but to be fair, looking back, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because that. If I, if I didn't learn from the experience at Warrington, I certainly then, you know, I had to grow up pretty quickly in, in rugby terms and um, probably changed my game a little bit, made me become more responsible. Um, but yeah, so that was a, you know, a really good 12 months of establishing ourselves in that league. And, um, and then ultimately, the, the year after that, uh, we then... We, we won the league in 2013, which was, uh, we won the league and cup double, which is a really, really okay. successful year for us. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say was the average age of that team? So you became captain at about 24. Was it mainly young guys looking to make it bigger or was it old guys coming down or, you know, what? We had, if I look back, I think we had a pretty, we did have a pretty young team. We had a few experienced players in there that would have been in the thirties, but I would probably say the average age would have not been far off what I was, so maybe 25, 26. Uh, but it was a relatively young, hungry team, to be fair. And I think that's what Clive and John, the coaches at the time, wanted. They wanted, um, you know, they wanted a team that was young and wanted to improve and prove themselves and. I think over the course of that 12 months and obviously ultimately the year after we, we, we did that because we went on and won the, the League and Cup double. Very good. So at this point you're 25? 25, 25 about, yeah. 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 Uh, so then the following season, I guess, then is when you you suffered an injury. Is that right? Yeah, so 24 would have been captain, 25 he would have won the league. So it would have been 26, 27 the year after. And what I played the year before uh, with a, with I knew I had a shin splint problem, um, but because we were going for the league, I sort of carried on playing. Uh, I wouldn't train so much in the week, but I'd, I'd play. And then we got promoted into the championship, and then I started the season off. But then I literally, I, I got to the point where I couldn't. I was unable to to run really, um, and I went. I remember going to see a specialist in Leeds and. Um, having x-rays on my shins which I didn't even realise you could at the time 
and he just he just basically said that you know you need you need an op ASAP on your legs and um, yeah that was pretty much my my season done four games into being in the championship really. Wow. And so then, then what? How long were you out with the injury? So I had to wait. There was a few issues at the, at the club at the time uh, from the previous owner. So I, I had to wait longer than longer than I, I should have to to have an operation. So by the time I'd, I'd had the operation, looked at re- recovery time, it was probably into the, the start of the following year. So that was t- at least twelve months. So that was dragging on for. And then I didn't have the best rehabilitation with off-field issues. Um, so I was probably out out for 18 months. And then over the course of that time, because of complications and um, not having the right rehab and just not playing, and I, that was when you know I, I struggled off the pitch. Um, in that time, the club had been relegated from the championship. So we, we got promoted. And unfortunately, we, we, we got relegated the, the year after. So I think a combination of me not being in, not being playing, uh, the club getting relegated, uh, obviously just the frustration of not being able to sort of do and little, little things like running or everything you take for granted probably got on top of me. Well, it didn't probably get on top of me. It did get on top of me. Uh, throughout that year, I struggled massively with... Um, depression and mental health and uh, it was a real wake-up call because I'd never really, you know, we, and so I think until you know someone or you've been through that, you really struggle to understand what, you know, how bad man, mental health can be. And I think throughout that year, I was lucky really that I had such, the group of lads we had at the Crusaders, was we were really, really uh, close-knit group. And I had some uh, really good friends amongst the group as well as our coach. Uh, who helped me through and yeah it was a, it was a tough time it was a tough time I, I you know got through it in the end but it was yeah. a tough time in my life horrible so what were for you what were some of the what were the symptoms like what did it what did it feel like you know what were often when depression hits you know especially for really active guys suddenly you don't want to get out of bed anymore and um, which then makes you feel worse. Like that was the main. I was that kind of thing. So, what was it for you? What were the symptoms for you? That was a massive one. At first, it was put down to being, you know, tired or, I suppose, a bit lazy. I suppose, uh, but that was a real big one. Um, just lying there and not, you know, not wanting to do anything. Uh, that I suppose that's how it starts. But then, um, looking back now, I suppose, uh, just everyday things like. I, so I wouldn't want to go out of the house. I wouldn't want to train. Um, I wouldn't want to watch. I wouldn't want to watch sport, which I found really, really odd because I don't, even like now again, I'm a massive, as you know, I'm a massive sports fan, whether it be football, golf, rugby, um, American football. You know, I watch any sport, just all the things that I'd, that I'd always done, I was tend to be putting them off and not, not doing them things. Um, which is a really odd thing. But if you speak to a lot of people who've, who've suffered with the same thing, they say that you know this, they stop doing things they enjoy as well. Uh, and to be fair, I look. At, I think you become sort of snappy with people who are close to you as well. And if I look back at my, with my with my family and stuff, um, I've got an amazing family. But I think at the time I was probably a bit distant 
distant with them as well, which um, you know, he was, was totally not, totally not like me. How long, if you know, how long do you do you think, in hindsight, you were suffering before you one realized you were suffering, and two admitted you were suffering to someone? Probably, I would say about six months to anyone. Just totally, probably half that time was probably me not realizing what was going on. Then three months of it, thinking it'll go away. Then I remember speaking to a couple of my close friends, like Stu, um, couple Stu Reed, and couple of uh, John, a couple of my other close mates. You know, saying I think you know, I think I've got a bit of an issue here, which is when uh, I was encouraged by the club as well as well as my coach to speak to a charity called State of Mind, who are brilliant. Uh, they do a lot of work uh, in rugby league, but they, they do a lot of work in general with um, sports people, which is a fantastic charity. So and then probably another six months before I told my family and opened up a little bit. So you're probably looking 12, 18 months of real suffering before you know I knew, I knew, I knew what was sort of going on, really. Yeah. Why do you think... You waited so long before you told the first person. When you're in that, when you're in that sort of mindset, I think you're a bit embarrassed. I think it's a mix of being embarrassed, um, thinking uh, things will go away. So what's the point in telling someone? Because in a couple of weeks you'll be okay. So I think a mix of a mix of them emotions really, and just uh, I always remember thinking, although I was, <clears throat> I was obviously suffering a bit. I always remember thinking, like waking up every day and thinking, what you know, why are you feeling like this? Because what you've got, okay, it's not ideal, but it's it's nowhere near as bad as some people or some things you see on the news or experience in life. But yeah. you know, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, I, I just remember thinking I was so silly because you know you're feeling like this just because you can't play rugby. People a lot worse off than me, but you know, unfortunately, depression doesn't doesn't work like that. No. Yeah, the comparison thing can be one of the most dangerous bits of all. Of yeah, it. yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Do you do you think there is still a stigma attached with, uh, especially in kind of the, the truly masculine sports, rugby, football, things like that? Do you think there's still a stigma attached with, with admitting that you're weak? Yeah, I think, I think there is. I think we're getting better at it. I think there's been a lot of work done. I can only speak. I don't really know what work goes on in other sports, but I think to be fair, you know, rugby league sometimes gets a lot of knockers. But I think the the work they do, uh, or the work state of mind do, sorry, in rugby league has sort of opened it up, and there's more and more players um, sort of coming out and and speaking out and getting help. So I think I think they're on the right track, and I you know I applaud them for the work they're doing there. But I still think there's probably you know, a long way to go in terms of, you know, where, where they want to be. But yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a stigma there. It's, it's, it's tough, I suppose, as blokes to, to open up sometimes, but, you know, I'll just, it's one of the things that I would, you know, advise anyone to do because it, it does, it does help just speaking to people, especially professional people who've been, you know, seen, the, you know, hundreds of times and helped so many people. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a long way to go, but yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, I always say that the first step, when you're struggling with mental illness, the first step is always the hardest step. 
and, and that's yeah just telling somebody uh, yeah correct yeah yeah being willing to admit it that first time uh, is, is definitely the hardest step so you were out of the game due to injury then kind of depression which didn't help your recovery i would assume you know, no, being, yeah. being depressed not wanting to train not wanting to leave the house um so you were in all you're out about 18 months is that is that right yeah i would say out injured 18 months and then to be honest when i when i come back i i was um you're probably looking another six months to a year before i got back i put to be fair i put on quite a lot of weight uh, with what had gone on uh, I really and that doesn't help getting with the back depression, does it? No, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you're probably you're probably looking. at probably twenty from twenty seven to twenty nine. I probably didn't twenty. Yeah, twenty seven to twenty nine. I probably I didn't play. I probably played a handful of games, trying to come back and stuff. Again, at the time, the way the the coaches at the club were with me and my my teammates was, um, yeah, I, I owed them a lot because that was a, a tough time. At, at no point did a I felt pressure on myself and I felt bad from a personal point of view, but the way the club and my friends were, I mean, was a different class, to be honest. That's great to hear. Really, really good to hear. Yeah. Um, so what happened with your career from there? So from, yeah, so I eventually got back playing 29, 30, 31, and then I played. And then at the time there was some younger lads coming through the club and I'd always been sort of a Crusaders player I'd, I didn't envisage ever playing anywhere else and I was sort of in a position where I was I was playing but I knew I knew full well that I wasn't myself and I was potentially holding people back and holding the team back and I'm pretty honest in in my performances and I just got to the point where I thought you know this this, this is this is me done I'm not I'm not particularly getting any enjoyment out of playing the way I'm playing if that makes sense mm. um so I just made the decision that, you know, it was time to... And, and over the course of when I was thinking this, I'd been made general manager of the club that I played for. So I was doing a lot of off-field work. So I just thought my time would be served better, sort of helping the club in another way, if that makes sense. And, yeah, I just got to 30, 31 and thought, you know, time, time to do something else. So you stopped playing, you're working as general manager for the club... And then what else? Yeah. So rugby was only ever at this point was that you were only semi-professional anyway. Yeah. So so through that through that time I was I was always a, um, I worked for a company uh, called Euro Car Parts. I was a sales rep and a sales manager. Then towards the end of my playing career, I was um, a manager there. So I was I was combining that role with being sort of part-time player, part-time general manager of the club. Um, so I was a, I was I was a busy busy person to be fair towards the back end of my career. Yeah, so I did that up until probably about six months ago, where I just made the plunge to sort of take the job on as as chief exec of the club full time. And to be fair, it's something that you know I've always w wanted to do, and the club needed someone to do it. I suppose so. Yeah, it's just sort of fell from finishing to being general manager. It's just sort of I fell into place really, and it's something that. Something that I enjoy doing. So you've gone from part-time player at 22 years old to yeah. CEO of the club at, how old are you now? 32, 33. 32, 33 yeah. now. 
33 now, yeah. Um, it's quite a big jump, quite a change in career choice from being a player to being a CEO. Did you just have to look up how old you are? No. Did you just have to, you I, just have to check? I, I saw you looking. I'm sure you I was, just looked up how old you are. I was 32 when I started. I'm 33 now, I think. So, so CEO uh, of a club. Uh, that's how do you feel about that? Do you feel qualified? Do you feel like, oh no, what have I done? I feel qualified in in some ways. Obviously, the rugby aspect of it, dealing with the lads, and um, you know, my rugby experience stands me in good stead. On one hand, on the, I suppose from always working in sales and, and being a manager in my other job, it, that sort of the, a lot of it coincides with, you know, it's similar, similar practices from dealing with sponsors and stuff and, and, and that side of things. But yeah, you know, I've still probably still got a lot, you know, there's still things to learn. I'm learning every day, but, um, you know, with the club's not in a bad place can, compared to where it's been in the past under, under previous ownership. And we'll just look to, sort of build for next year but it's tough at the, tough at the minute obviously with what, what's going on through through different things with COVID and stuff so yeah it's, yeah. Uh, it's challenging but it's something that I enjoy so let's go back to the that kind of business side and the whole COVID mess in just a minute I, I just want to talk to you for a minute about the, the more player development side so you're you're now 33 years old still a pup yeah. and but you've got a, a lot of experience through rugby. You've got a lot of life experience. You've got the experience of maybe not realizing your full potential as a youngster. Then uh, the experience of the, the depression, the mental illness, um, the coming back from all that, coming back from the injury. You've got quite a lot of experience to potentially pass on to some of these, these kids that you're bringing through. Is that a part of it that you that you think about? Is that a part of the job that you enjoy? Or do you, as CEO, are you kind of saying, actually, I'm going to leave that side to someone else and I'm just going to focus on the business? No, to be fair, uh, me and Muz, who's our, who's our coach, we, I, do get, I don't get involved in terms of anything training-wise and stuff. Um, obviously, that's Muzzy's, Muzzy's remit. But in terms of, obviously, player development, yeah, that is something you know we we do look at between us with quite a strong ethos in developing young players. If I mean, I think if going into next season, the average age of our squad must be twenty. I would say twenty three, twenty four. So we've got a lot of young lads that are coming out of academies who are probably in the same position to what I was because I think that the the hunger they have and the willingness the you know, they, they have to prove themselves and we've got, you know, we've got a lot of young players who fall into that category. We've got one or two more experienced ones because I think it's important to, you know, to get that to get that blend. But in terms of me and my experience, yeah, I think that definitely reflects in what we try and recruit. Um, and hopefully, it's always pretty, it's always stood us in good stead, to be honest. I know me and Muz share the same ethos on that. Uh, you know, we've had, We've had one or two lads that have come through us, uh, even from the amateur game that we've given a chance to, and now gone on to uh, play for Super League teams or Championship teams. Um, so that, yeah, I would say that that experience has pro- probably, you know, made us go down that that route as well as as well as it helps when the coach has got the same sort of thought process as well, and, and I know uh, most definitely has. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, I talk a lot about culture and the culture of a club or a business, whatever yeah. it is. And um, if your CEO and your manager can create a culture of development, a culture of care uh, that just pervades the whole yeah. club, uh, then, you know, if you're on the same page on that, you can accomplish a lot. Yeah, definitely. I th I, to be fair, buddy, I think, I think we have to just touch on that. I think we have to as well because the, the, there are teams in our league and the league above that, are, you know, you know they do spend a lot more money than what we do. Um, but I think you know it's not always about that. And you exactly agree with what you just said. If you can create a culture where people want to be involved with it, that, that you know that that goes a long way as well. Yeah, I I, I think culture for sustained uh, success. I think culture is way overlooked. You know, yeah. I, I think it's probably the most important yeah. aspect for sustained success. Um, I just actually wrote an article recently called Culture Beats Talent. Um, and I think if you look at clubs yeah. in various sports that have managed to get to the top uh, or to achieve beyond expectations for them, uh, almost always to get there and stay there is because there's been a change of culture. It's not because you have the best players. It's because you have the best culture no. the best environment a place where players want to be uh, where they love to play love to have just be a part of a community as much as as much as anything yeah. else so, i think the, the biggest example of that is probably manchester united under Alex ferguson obviously it's a great example the culture he created and success how successful he was and you know you look at what's happened since he's left you know and it's not it's not as if they haven't spent million you know they've, they've probably spent more since he left than when he was there but it's just obviously the culture and and what he created and people want, wanting to be involved that just just drove it on yeah i mean i know you're a united supporter so you would use that uh <laughs> as an example but you're right uh, you know the the culture under uh sir alec ferguson was incredible what, what he managed to create yeah. um and now Obviously, I'm a Liverpool supporter. I think uh, Liverpool, what they're doing under Klopp uh, and, and the current owners is similar. Um, yeah. Not just they, they don't buy Correct, the best, yeah. most expensive players, um, but they're creating an environment where um, they're going to get the best out of everyone they do have. But you see it, you know, I think uh, Burnley, I know they're now looking at a new buyer at Burnley Football Club potentially, but the the culture yeah. under their current manager uh, that they've managed to create they've uh, overachieved you know for the last yeah, yeah, years yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the culture and uh, yeah so I, I think you can look across sports uh, and see where culture where culture wins um, yeah all the if you're an American football yeah. fan I, I hate the New England Patriots but um, the culture that they've had for the last 15 years under their, their coach Belichick is Belichick, incredible. Yeah. You know, they, they yeah. didn't have the most expensive team ever, but they managed to win a lot of games every single year, including a lot of Super Bowls by creating a culture. Um, yeah. So hugely important. And, you know, and what you're trying to do at North Wales with these, these young kids and, and using your experience to, uh, to build them up, um, to prepare them for life as well as as rugby, uh, I think is is really important. 
let's talk just a little bit now about uh, the rugby club, I guess, as a, well, not just the club, but rugby in general uh, as a business, but particularly under COVID times, which have been pretty difficult for you guys. So when was the last yeah. time you played a competitive rugby match at North Wales Rugby Club? So we haven't played since March, so it's been a long time now. So we were, we were only two or three games into our season when COVID struck. And then the, the Rugby Football League made the decision probably in July, August, that the season was, you know, was not going to go ahead at, at our level, which I think everyone accepted was the, you know, the, the, the right thing to do, common sense thing to do. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough few months, obviously for everyone, but especially uh, with the uncertainty of, of not knowing, you know, what was going on and stuff. We've been quite lucky uh, in terms of uh, our supporters and players understanding the times we're in. So that, you know, that that's helped the club massively. But you know, we, we normally look to go back into pre-season training now uh, in November because our season again would start in February or March. Uh, obviously, with the lockdown announced midweek, uh, that's probably not going to going to happen now. So yeah, the, I think the toughest bit at the minute is the unknown and not you know not not knowing what to plan for. I suppose because we plan to go back in training at the end of this month where. You know, that's obviously been sort of scuppered now. So, But everyone's in the same boat, so we just have to take it, you know, week by week and see where we're at. But it is frustrating, but like you say, there's, there's people more affected than what, what we have been by. We just have to be be patient and just be sensible in what, in what we do. Yeah. So top-level rugby did go back to play. Um, just had Top-level rugby, yeah, continued, yeah. 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 But you so they're, they're obviously under. No, just because obviously the lads have all got jobs, and you know it's it's pretty impractical to think that they can all live in bubbles that they're required to. So yeah, it's made the decision that you know that was going to be impossible to do. Whereas obviously, Super League players, it's the full t- it's a full time job. Um, they can live in bubbles. They can be tested every week, which is what the they have done, and yeah, they've managed to get through the season. It's not been without. Um, sort of complications. There have been games called off with with COVID and players and groups catching it, but it looks like they're gonna you know, they're gonna finish the season and get to a grand final, which from a broadcast point of view, I suppose, is what Sky Sky Sports want and need and and what the game needs, because ultimately that keeps the keeps the money coming into the game. Yeah. Do you do, do lower level, do you get any support from the Super League or Sky or anything? Do, no, is there any money that trickles down? Yeah, we get it from Sky. We, yeah, the, the money trickles down through Sky, so we we don't uh, we don't get anything off Super League. Um, but yeah, the money the money makes its way down to the lower leagues from Sky. To be fair, yeah, and that that enables you know uh, clubs to function, I suppose, and then we grow our business on on the back of that, which has been that's been a tough element of things. You know, you know, it's not we haven't been able to. It's it's been sort of in survival mode for the past six months and I suppose over the next couple of months we'll continue to do so but yeah we're not we're not in a we're, we're in an okay position we're not in a bad position we're not you know we're not we're not going anywhere we're we recruited quite strongly as we spoke about for next year so yeah I'm looking forward to next year I just hope that everything sort of got falls to plan and 
we can start the season probably in end of March, April time, all things going well. Have you been able to, again, your players are only part-time, have you been able to support them at all financially through this? Well, to be fair, on with them being part-time, most of our lads will be, um, will get paid for, for obviously uh, playing and stuff. Um, so it's more the, the, the staff of the, of the, uh, clubs or the coaches and maybe myself and uh, assistant coaches and stuff like that. So, yeah, everyone is, um, you know, through schemes or whatever, they're still getting paid. Now, if we go back into training this month, uh, you know, we've we've been fine really on, on, on that front. But, yeah, if it, if it carries on into in, probably into March, April, May, then we'll have to see where we're at. But at the minute, yeah, we've, we've, been, we've been okay on that front, to be honest. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were able to play in a socially distanced golf day, um, which would have looked quite different yeah. if COVID hadn't been in place. Yeah, yeah. And I was able to meet a couple of your sponsors that day. Now, do you want to give a shout out to some of your sponsors? Yeah. Because you, you do have some really good sp- supportive sponsors, don't you? Yeah, we do. So our main partner is, um, is Rexham Lager, who are quite a prominent company in, in North Wales and Rexham and they've been, you know, been to be fair, they're brilliant with us. They're owned by two brothers who, who are really supportive and obviously it's not been a, you know, fantastic time for them with all the um, hospitality industry shutting, but not the great blokes and, the, you know, they always support us. There was a couple on there that obviously you met um, from A&D Environmental and I think you met our, our captain, Carla Shaw, who put in a dubious score <laughs> uh, to win to win the day, which was quite quite contentious. Um, Agreed. Yeah. But yeah, you know, Ian Edwards spun. Yeah, <laughs> Ian Edwards from Allington Hughes, who are a law firm in in Wrexham, sponsored the day. Uh, they they've been sponsors with us since the conception, really, in 2012. Um, and the and the golf day was for Nightingale House Hospice, which is a local charity in the area that provide palliative care for. Um, for people, it's a fantastic charity. So yeah, it was it was a tough day to get off the ground, but you know I'm glad we glad we um, glad we went through it, and it was a an eventful day, shall we say? It was, I'm sure, for you uh, organising it. it. Must have been a nightmare. I think you had to change venues. Yeah, yeah. On. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's just a, you know a, an example of what COVID what COVID's done and you know we, we have to change venue change times but I suppose you just have to persevere and get on with things and, and get things done you know I always say like I said to you before there's always someone worse off so you know it's not a massive wasn't a massive issue it wasn't ideal but you know we just have to to get on with these things I suppose yeah and the weather held out uh, which was nice on the day yeah well good, good job it was because obviously the clubhouse shut the day before we were due to um, <laughs> due to play, so I'm not sure what we'd have done if the if the heavens would have opened. But yeah, we were we were looking. Hopefully, it was a good day. Having to eat socially distanced bacon butties outside after the <laughs> after the yeah, round yeah. was a bit different than the original. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a good day. It was it's also a good to be lager drunk as well. <laughs> there there may have been one or two bottles of Wrexham lager drunk on the day by me and yeah. many more by <laughs> by others. By me and John. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it was good to meet some of the players to obviously get to play with Jono and, and meet a few of the other lads as well. Uh, it seems like a nice group of a nice group of people that you that you've got over there. Your captain's a bit yeah, of a, they are to be fair, mate. Your captain's a bit of a loon. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Remind me and his a cheat name as well. And a cheat, Carl. Yes. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll be sure he gets tagged in when we um, post the <laughs> podcast. Um, so you're hoping to be back up and running, ideally early next year. There might be, I mean, there might be some advances on testing yeah. by then. You know, Liverpool is just going to trial this week, unlimited testing. Uh, free of charge, I think. Um, we can get the results in an hour. Yeah, so. I've seen that. I've seen that this morning. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah positive. Hopefully, yeah. I don't know. Hopefully, some positive news to come through this, and we can, you know, get back to some normality for everyone's sake. It's tough. I know the government get a lot of stick for what they do, and you know, it's not been ideal for anyone. But we just have to, you know, try and make the the best of it and hopefully we'll like you say come March, April there'll be some sort of maybe a, hopefully a vaccine or like a, a test like you say that's available that we can we can get the lads back playing and you know what more importantly widely trying to, trying to get life back to normal as well. Yeah. Well before we finish so I, I want to say well done on what you're doing at the rugby club and you know all the best with uh, being the CEO there and you know you're young you've you've got lots of time to give to it you know there's there's all sorts of yeah. potential for the club and uh, I just wish you all the best there but a few really important questions before we finish who is the best golfer you've ever played with you would be the best golf there's some good golfers at Brombro was you hoping that I would say you I knew you wouldn't say me and I know I know that would have been <laughs> I'm just hoping I'm not the answer to the next question um, oh, right, okay, cool. which is which is who is the worst like who's the, the worst golfer you ever played with oh John would be up there wouldn't he I tell you what he couldn't be far off uh, <laughs> yeah but uh, he's the best drinker anyway I know that <laughs> he, yeah, worst golfer which maybe worst golfer and best drinker go hand in hand um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe there is a, a direct correlation who was the best manager you've ever had in terms of man management? Some managers are really into tactics. Uh, some are better about man management. Uh, who's who's the best manager you've ever played for? To be honest with you, probably man management. Uh, mostly who's the coach of the club now. He was my coach towards the end of my career. Yeah, so I'd probably say Mus. Uh, I had a coach at Warrington as well called Gary Chambers who, uh, it was brilliant man management, so I'd probably say I'd probably say them too, to be honest. Great. What are your hopes and dreams for North Wales rugby over the next two years? It's going to be a tough twelve months. My hopes would be that we're really competitive next year. There is going to be some strong teams in our league. So my hopes for next year are we get into the playoffs um, and give it a good go and see if we can try and push for promotion by the playoffs. Being realistic, I think it'd be a tough order for us to get promoted. You know, there's a there's a team from Canada in our league next year, Ottawa Stags, who are who are going to be a full time team. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of teams with big budgets by the look of it going going all out next year to get promoted. But I'm quite confident by what we're doing that we can, you know, be competitive and hope to get in them playoffs and and see where the season goes from there. And then you, you know, you never know from you never know what will happen after that. 
Now, apparently there is a Canadian looking at buying um, Wrexham football team. Yeah, any, there is. Yeah. Have, have you managed to make contact yet to see if he's got any interest in rugby? I've not. Uh, no, I've not. But I do plan on doing, to be fair, because, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. What he's, if, you know, if it comes off for the football club, it would be brilliant. Um, you know, Wrexham football clubs are, to, you know, to be fair, it's a big, it's a big club. Um, they're probably underachieving. So it'd be good if he can come in there and, you know, and sort the football club out. Be good for the town. But it'd also be uh, be good for us if he could, you know, get involved and we wouldn't need as much money as what as what they would to get promoted, I'll tell you that. But uh, no, it'd be good for the town and if he's got an interest. Someone else told me at one point he has been to watch a Toronto Wolfpack game. Okay. How true that is, I don't know. Uh, I hope it's true. I hope he likes it. For, the, for those of you who don't know... They will. We're talking about Ryan Reynolds. We might be able to get Ryan Reynolds, yeah, and his director friend as well, both of them, Robert. That's right. Yes, Robert I can't remember his name. Is. So yeah, the, the, yeah. So I, I think that's that's going ahead this week by the sounds of it. So it'd be good for them and good for Wrexham if that comes off. And you never know down the line if the if you like rugby league, you'll be more than welcome to uh, <laughs> invest in us as well. Just a small investment would do. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you this morning. It's good to get to know you a little bit better. And um, unfortunately, that's not going to happen on a golf course anytime soon. No, so, no. no I appreciate that. Always good to talk, mate. And hopefully we can uh, catch up soon. That'll be good. Apparently, we can at least still meet socially distanced one-on-one in a park. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> we can be down at local park, maybe throw a football or a rugby ball around. Yeah, we'll have, yeah, we'll have to get out and you can show me how to chuck the uh, American football about. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. All right, mate. Well, thanks so much for the conversation, uh, for being on the podcast, and um, keep us posted on Northwell. We look forward to hearing what's next. Will do. Thank you, mate. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, pal. Thanks again for tuning in to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. If you're looking for a rugby team to support, please look up North Wales Rugby and do follow along. I'm sure Andy and the boys would be very appreciative of your support. If you're involved in sports in any way, then do look up Future Proof Sports Consulting here to help players and teams perform at their best and prepare for the future. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and to give us a five-star rating on whatever platform that you listen from. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll be back soon with our next release from Sing When You're Losing. Take care, everyone.